Hello, lovely people. How are you? I hope you're good, and I hope you're ready for our next conversation. Which, fingers crossed, you'll love. But a quick question first: If you could rate and review this episode, well, then that would be marvelous. It somehow helps other people find the podcast, and this means we're helping as many people as possible with their next chapters and to live the wonderful and fabulous lives meant for them. Well, speaking of fabulous, what a woman I have for you today! Millie Johnson is the author of romantic fiction, who sold millions of copies of her books all over the world. She's won numerous awards, including the Outstanding Achievement Award for the Romantic Novelist Association. But before all this, she was a single mum, writing messages for greeting cards, then working on her books through the night, propped up, as she says, by Walker's shortbread and good coffee. It took Millie fifteen years to find a publisher. Fifteen years. But since then, her books have not only entertained; they've addressed difficult issues, they've helped women break free, and perhaps most importantly, feel seen. We talk about the sandwich generation, what would happen if Keanu Reeves knocked on her door, and the power of picking ourselves up and carrying on. Yes, it's true. Millie is one of my favourite authors and one of my biggest role models. But I think if you didn't know Millie before this conversation, you'll agree what a special woman she is. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter, from journalist to author, I speak with some incredible people who've already started their next chapter, in the hope it might help you with your next chapter, or at the very least, you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here she is, Millie Johnson. Millie Johnson, I am—I cannot describe how thrilled I am to have you with me. Welcome to the next chapter. I did promise I wasn't going to gush, but I think I'm probably going to gush a little bit. So I do apologise. <laughs> no, please do. Gush all you like. <laughs> oh, But Millie, as we said, you know, I've been following your work for a long time now and I hadn't quite understood your story, which makes you perfect for next chapter guests. I'm just going to just, just get straight into it. So we start as ever with the prologue. Now, you grew up in Barnsley, where you are today, and you sort of pretty much, apart from when you went to university, you've been there all your life. Yeah, I had a little stint in Haworth. I, uh, I moved over to Haworth when I was about 25 um, because I, and I'm glad I did really. I, I wanted to just immerse myself in Bronte land. I mean, whenever I was, I had any spare time and please don't tell the building society this, when I didn't have spare time and used to ring in sick uh, because I hated my job so much and just go off to Haworth, I spent so much time. I thought, why don't I just go and live there? So I did an experienced village life, which is very different to town life and came in very handy for my writing. Um, but yes, I've, I've, stayed in, I've stayed in Yorkshire. I've stayed chained, chained to the borders. Oh, but what a wonderful place to be. So you, grew, you said when you were growing up, you were actually, you were quite, you're quite academic, but you, you loved writing. You, lo- you loved the idea of being a writer, but you thought you would never, ever be able to be a writer. No, not at all. I mean, I, I came from a very traditional you know family uh, nobody ever thought that I'd go off and do something as rash as become you know um, uh, an artist uh, or an author you know in doing something with the arts because you were kind of expected to get a proper job and you know it wasn't it wasn't that my parents um, that well they wanted me to have security like they did they wanted they knew I was I was 
I was bright. Um, you know, I, I got all my A-levels, my O-levels, etc. So they wanted me to have some stability. And they wouldn't have seen um, being an author as a, as a stable profession, quite right, because it isn't. Mm. <clears throat> but I wasn't like them at all. So they couldn't understand my mindset. And maybe if I'd had parents who were very arty, etc., then they might have said, go for it, blah, blah. But, but you know, I didn't come from that sort of background. Mm. Well, it's understandable. So, uh, your, your grandparents were great readers, weren't they? And you, you were a great reader. Yeah, well, my, my grandparents were, my, my granddad was was a really arty fella, you know. he My, my nana loved reading, Mills and Bunch, yep. Um, <laughs> my granddad, he drew, he loved opera, um, he, he was a, a, a poet, he wrote a lot of poetry. But what are you supposed to do with that in the 30s mm. when, you you know, the, 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 the school doors shut and the minds open? And so that's what he just did in his spare time. I think they would have been, I think they would have got it. They would have got it. And alas, you know, they never saw, they never saw this, you know, this me getting a, a book deal, et cetera. They never saw this world I belonged to. I mean, it was only in the last couple of years, I think, before my dad died, um, that that he actually kind of got off his, his worry perch and thought, yeah, she's doing okay, actually. Mm. You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a different, it was a different world. I belonged to a different world. Mm. Mm. I was living in that world, you know, mm. and it was, a, it was an odd one. It was an odd one for my family. Yeah, but you can understand it as well, can't you? Even like yeah. now as a mum, you'd, you'd think, God, I hope with our boys, whatever they decide to do, I can see why your parents, you, you do want them to have security, don't you? you? You know, and you know how hard it is in these jobs that don't. So I can understand it completely. Me too. I mean, it's not a criticism at all. They, it, they were worried sick. Mm. Even, you know, when I was, um, you know, starting off, etc. They they were worried sick because it wasn't, it wasn't a, a world they understood. It wasn't going into work and having sick pay and having a pension. It wasn't a world they were um, a, a, at all, um, you know, familiar with. But it is mad, you know. I mean, it really, looking back at it, you think, what on earth possessed me? Yeah. Because there is no security in it. You, you really have to to forge your way um, in, in this profession. And even you can be the best at what you do and still not get the proper recompense. Mm. It's not a level playing field. It, it's like that, you know, it's on a proper tick tilt. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't want to drive up it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you it, it's it's having that passion and, and knowing all the facts and still going for it anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So so at school you did have passion. Now, did I, did I hear this right, that you had a friend called Gillian and I mean, she sounds yeah. amazing, Gillian, but she just kept winning. <laughs> she kept winning all the literary awards, all the writing awards. Gillian, she was. Gillian. I mean, she'll she'll say to me, you know, when I, I eventually catch, you know, catch up with her on occasions, and she'll say, "Am I still in your speech?" And I'll say, "Yep, you're there." <laughs> you know, she was so still is <clears throat> so incredibly talented. She could write, fantastic artist, beautiful singer. She she eventually became a tailoress and and makes. Uh, Period costumes, you know, all wow. the Jane Austen, that kind of uh, Regency romance. Wow, she makes yeah. those from scratch, even the shoes. Wow. She's absolutely brilliant. Um, she she literally had so many talents, she had to pick one <laughs> and throw it all at it. Um, but, you know, as, as it was in school, that if any anybody, um, if there was any literary prize hanging about, Gillian automatically got it by default. Mm -hmm. Nobody even got a look at it. 
And maybe had I had a literary kind of uh, chance at school or or whatever, maybe I I wouldn't have had the kind of circuitous route that I did get um, to my career, but a very valuable one. You know, I went down the drama route because I was better than Gillian at drama. Good for you, Millie. You know, I went down that route where you say, well, I'm good at something, therefore I must study it even though it wasn't my top love. And, you know, when my son did that at university, I did warn him and say, do not pick the subject you are good at. Pick something you love to do or you'll drop out. And he did. And then went and did something that he really loved. And the difference, as you can see, is is amazing, you know. Um, But, yeah, I went down the drama route. and uh, um, But I I never really – but, weirdly enough, even though I was going in the opposite direction – there were so many markers along my my route that kept pushing me back onto the right path mm. uh, where I should be. You know, it, it's bizarre, really, how I ended up where I did, considering I was heading off in the in the wrong direction. But no, I, I didn't really want to. It's come in handy, of course, because I do a lot of performing. It's increased my confidence levels. You know, I, I go and talk to people, um, and so it came in handy. But I wouldn't have wanted it as a career. No, no. Well, we're mi- before we move on to that, let me just ask you this. Gillian, I bet she's a yes. nice person as well, isn't she? I bet she's one of those people that's just lovely. Yes. Yeah. That makes it worse. Makes it worse, it's Millie. To hate. Yeah. She was brilliant. We used to go off, you know, at school and write the chapter of a novel, you know, and then we'd bring them into school the next day. And she'd read hers. They, obviously, she'd flaming oh, illustrate yeah. as well, like an artist. And I, if she went first, I just used to throw mine yeah. away because she was brilliant. Yeah. And like years later, you know, you kind of your paths split and then they come back together again. I said, what on earth? Why didn't you ever do writing? You know, why didn't you ever? And she just wasn't interested. No, she, and I bet she was wearing really nice shoes and clothes as well at the same time as well, which is what she went on really? to do. And tiny and gorgeous, oh, and looked about Gillian. two years older than she did at school. Oh yeah, we well, yeah. well, you know, good for Gillian, good for Gillian. <laughs> but listen, so you, you, um, then, so you, you, um, I think you came to Exeter actually, down into the west for university, didn't you, to drama? Yes. But then yeah. you found yourself in Wales working in a hotel. I think there was a, a bit of a bad breakup. Dare I say, you ended up yes. in Wales, and then you saw you came in contact with a film crew. Which is amazing, really. Yeah, yeah, because I'd gone there to get out of the way, picked the most far away place, you know, first love, first love um, ended, and he lived down the road. So I did not want to go home in the long summer holidays because I'd see him, I'd see him with his new woman. <clears throat> so um, I literally got a copy of the lady and stuck a pin in it, and it said, you know, we're looking for a girl Friday at this hotel in Wales. And so I went there. It took me 11 hours to get there from Exeter. Um, and it was so out of the way that all these, and it was so beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. All the film crews used to come. Um, and so I was I was there right at the beginning of the careers of people like Owen Teal, uh, who was, um, who I, I had many a jolly time within the bar. He was lovely. Uh, Blake from Blake Seven was there. There was Shirley Stelfox, who was ended up as Edna from Coronation Street, was a very glam actress and was the um, the sidekick to Julie Walters in Personal Services. This place was 
full of film crews all the time. And they took me off and went, you're a drama student. We'll take you on a, you know, a film shoot. You can see what it's going to be like. And that's when my dream ended because they took me there. And I thought, God, this is, I don't know what I was expecting, but I, it wasn't boring waiting around for clouds to move out of the sky and little shots, you know? I, I think I'd somehow projected myself from being a drama student to picking up my Oscar and not even thought about what came in between. Um, and I thought, this really isn't for me. Absolutely not for me. And it was Shirley Stelfox who took me on one side when she timed the question great and said, how did you get on at the, you know, the film show? Just burst into tears. And she said, has anybody ever spoken to you about what a career in drama is like? Not at all. You know, obviously I was stupid and immature and not even looked about it. Just went for a dream blindly without thinking about what it entailed. And she sat me down and told me that, you know, that people in the film crew, some of them would fall by the wayside and some of them would make it big, but they would all give it their best shot. And um, and so she she... You know, she said to me, promise me that you will go back to university. When I told her that I really wanted to write, she said, promise me you'll go back and give it your best shot and, you know, really go for it. And it was her, really, that that, that kind of turned things in my brain because when I went back to university, I started performing less and writing more. But what an amazing thing to have happened that you ended up in that hotel. I mean, I talk about the yeah. universe. I mean, that was that was a moment, wasn't it, Millie? It really was a moment. And it was the moment that kept on giving because Shirley died a few years ago. And I told this story in the Daily Mail as a sort of exercise that if you've got a thank you sitting in your heart for somebody that's not delivered, say it before it's too late. Mm. And Shirley's agent contacted me um, and um, and I ended up, doing um, the eulogy at her memorial service. Wow. And became really good friends with her best friends, um, you know, Bernice from Emmerdale mm. and, um, and her agent, who I go down to London and see her and have a lovely time with. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's bizarre how all these little threads that shouldn't join up in life some, somehow do. Yeah, isn't that incredible? And had you kept in touch with Shirley then after that? No, I didn't because I thought, oh God, all I could think of was that I was in this hotel and I spewed my emotional guts out to yeah. her about how my boyfriend had dumped me and how I was rubbish and I couldn't. Do and so afterwards, when I thought about it, I thought, oh, I'd love to, to write. But I had this cringe where I thought, oh, God, she'll not remember me. She'll think, oh, you know, I, I, that's it, it was just all wrapped up in cringe. And the annoying thing was that when I did speak to people afterwards uh, at the memorial service, they told me it was Sting's. I was sitting next to Sting's ex-wife, yeah. Frances, was lovely, and she said I was telling her the story, and she said Shirley would have remembered. Shirley would have remembered. Yeah. Wouldn't have, you know? She the the impact that Shirley had on my life was was huge, and she said Shirley would have loved that. She wouldn't have taken any credit for it, but she would have remembered. And I just never, I never said thank you because I, I, I felt stupid about mm. what I said. And, and I wish I had. I wish I'd just done it. And that taught me a lesson. Yeah. If you thank you sitting in your heart for someone, you should deliver it. You really should before it's too late. Yeah, you absolutely should. Let me just ask, did you tell her about Gillian? Uh, yes, everything. 
<laughs> everything. Uh, Julian crops on. I mean, I, I am Gillian. quite candid about it. You know, I've said everybody in the world knows about how brilliant you are, Gillian, and how, how crop I am at the side of you. Yeah, you know? I get Julian on, Millie. I mean, I don't want to get you upset, but here we want to meet Julian now. <laughs> um, well, yes, you know, I, I, she is an absolutely brilliant person. But because of that rivalry, I, I think that was a a real big part of of where I got because I I, I just. I wanted to do this. I wanted to be as good as Jimmy. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's amazing. But also, isn't it strange? The stories we tell ourselves, isn't it? That, you know, like that about Shirley, about you telling yourself, you know, I'm not as good as Gillian. And we just tell ourselves these stories. And 99% of the time, we're wrong. Yes. Yeah. But I, I think, you know, it, it's part of a it's part of a writer's personality to be neurotic. Um, and be, because all we do all day is say, what if this happened? What if this happened? So no wonder we're prone to anxiety and drug abuse because, um, you know, we we are creatures who are so insecure, I think, and the most secure part of us comes out on the page. The confident part of us, that ekes out on the page and leaves us just a mass of rubber and, and, and mess. But I, I quite like that because I, I think... I think had I been any other sort of personality, maybe I wouldn't have been able to to um to do what i do on the page if that mm. makes any sense yeah we'll come on to that but yeah absolutely with your writing that i know well that you do put it in and and that's amazing to be able that's the gift isn't it to be able to put that on the page but we we will come on to that because we'll stay at first of all with your first chapter now what i've because what i found unusual is after doing the drama and you're going to do the writing but you actually in the meantime became an accountant Oh God! Yeah. Worst, <laughs> so worst job misfortune history. But again, you see, you come like detour. I can't do what they did in the L-shaped room and live on beans yeah. and get myself cheap. You know, I needed to pay a mortgage. I didn't want to live with my mum and dad anymore, so I needed to pay a mortgage. I had bills to pay, and I couldn't have written the sort of books I write now back then. You know, I was it. Th- that was a, it. Was a very long apprenticeship. Um, and even though I was writing when I came home from my job, it wasn't publishable at all. It was, you know, I needed to refine myself a hell of a lot, so I needed to get a job, and my my mum was a dinner lady and used to do one of the rotary, uh, cater for the rotary clubs at bonfire night and said, can anybody give my daughter a job? And the person who answered was the bloke who ran the building society and said, I'll set her on as a trainee accountant, not even knowing what sort of person I was. And I went in there and it was horrific. I was I was going to college and doing the law I really enjoyed, but accountancy, economics and, and mathematics, statistics it was. And I was looking at this and I might as well have been doing a, a, a study in Swahili because nothing was making sense at all apart from the law part, which I really enjoyed. Um, and it was awful. Me and numbers just don't mix at all. Um, my accountant now will tell me to put the books on the floor and step slowly back. That's how bad I am. <laughs> um, but it was a job, you know, and uh, and I, I I ended it after a couple of years. I By that time, I was living out in Howarth. I'd taken advantage of the cheap mortgage that the building society gave me. And, of course, when I left... We were in, I think it was Thatcher's Britain, and the the my interest rate on my mortgage went from something like half a percent to sixteen and a half, mm. and so I had to have a variety of jobs 
um, each one trying to step stone um, to get more money to pay this mortgage to do a rubbish job and then come home in an evening and sit there on my typewriter and and write and hope that that was um, I would be writing you know the book that would would take me let me into into the world of literature. Mm-hmm. It was and were you married at this stage, Millie? No, 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 I was quite late when I got married. I didn't get married till 94, okay. uh, 95, was it 95? That's how memorable it is, I can't even remember, 95. Uh, so, I, you know, I had boyfriends, etc. and I was, um, you know, going from job to job, going from man to man, um, having friends, living life, and all that was enriching my writing. Mm. Realise you've got more things to say, more things to write about, and I was sending my work off at this point, and the, I mean, it was it was coming back rejected. But one agency took the time to write on the bottom and said, "You know, I like you. Your work is publishable, but you are not anywhere near ready." And that was all I needed. That encouragement was all I needed to think this isn't someone like Manana saying, "Oh, this is the best thing I've ever written." This was someone in the industry that had taken the time, even though they got 300 manuscripts per week to look through, to single me out with a little word of encouragement. Yeah. That kept me in the game. That kept me going, even though I thought, I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm too rubbish. And I, 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 I look at that and think, actually, there's I've got not even my foot in the door I've got my toe in the door here it's not quite closed yeah like a seed it was a seed wasn't it it was a seed and it and it kept it kept me on the right um it kept me on the right path even though there were many many times where I thought oh I've given it my best shot and it's just not going to happen no, I know. So, but you, so you, you, you did different jobs. You worked, didn't you, for a cruise company who ended up sacking you? But that, that actually helped you with your writing, didn't it? Indeed, because at the time, <clears throat> I was a bit like, uh, a bit like Barry Hines that I didn't realise at the time. Barry couldn't write about the South, even though he lived there. So he wrote about the North, and I couldn't write about the South, even though all the books at the time were set down south. It was the um, it was the chiclet phenomena, you know, where all the books seemed to be about um, young 20-somethings in PR jobs, living in London, sharing flats. It was a world I knew nothing about. But I was trying to ape it because I thought that's where the interest is. And, of course, it, it, I couldn't write authentically about it, so they were doomed to failure. I didn't think anybody would be interested in books about the North, but I, I did get sacked by a Yorkshire firm in Yorkshire, um, because they said my accent was better suited to the textile industry where I came from. Now that could have either cruised, which it did. I'll be honest with you. For you know, I, for about a week, I was I felt humiliated. I felt common, vulgar, the lowest of the low. And then I started to get angry. Um, and I, I suppose that your um, your your resilience sets in. And in order to offset that, I thought, uh, you know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna start writing books set in the north because um maybe that if i ever did get a book published set in the north and she ever heard about it this woman who sat me then you know she might she might just eat her words yes. you know, it was a bloody mindedness and that i started to set my books 
um, in Yorkshire. I, you know, I, I, and they, as I said before, they were set in this no man's land, but now they had a, a proper grounding. And I sent off an idea for a book to um, my very uh, receptive um, agent, a lady who worked in the agency, and uh, and she was she was I wasn't there yet, but it was like you're getting closer. This is good. This is good. Um, and um, so I was a step closer. Mm. So was that the same lady who wrote before who said to keep go- to keep going? So because you were you you there was one agent you really wanted, and it was it that lady. It was yes. It was. It, she worked in the agency. It was that agent that I really wanted. Um, and it was her that, that kept on writing and saying, "You know that this is this is." And, and also, she would write and tell me, "This is glib. This is rubbish. Go back to the drawing board." You know, but I could take that because I felt a little mentored. It was very very special, and it doesn't take much. Uh, it doesn't take many words from an agent to keep you on the straight and narrow. The agent I've got now, actually, was, was somebody else that I really wanted. There were two. And uh, I got one and then moved to the other. Um, but the agent I've got now wrote and said to me, I, I don't like your characters. I, I think that they are, um, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't like the women in it. And she turned that book around for me. She didn't take that book, but she actually ended up making me write the book in a way that did get me a publishing deal. Isn't that incredible? Uh, well, again, look, we we come on to that. We're we because we're just skipping over another one because this was before we got got there. Is that you also wrote um, greetings cards, didn't you? Because this was amazing as well. So how did that come about? <laughs> I was working in the building society, uh, which I think they forget to pay you money in a building society. They give you a cheap mortgage and then don't make you make you um, uh, trying to. Um, not let you see that there's there's not actually a lot of money in your pay packet. So I, I'd always written jokes. Jokes were my massive passion. I had, oh, about 10,000 joke books that I auctioned off and I've, I've bought most of them back. Um, and um, I've always loved writing jokes, little ditties, little poems, all that, always writing, you know. And um, and I, I needed some extra cash. Uh, and um, and so I, I got hold of a card that I'd uh, written and uh, sent to my dad and sent off some of these jokes and poems, four-line verse, to the address on the back of the card and said, do you ever buy, um, you know, jokes and poems and things? My idea of riches at this time, I have to say, was having 10 quid over at the end of the month so I could buy a video. Oh, yeah. And, um, and they wrote, he didn't have to do this. The guy who owned the firm wrote back to me and said, there's... Um, a range of cards that I've got coming out. My friend has written this range of cards and I'm marketing them for him. Um, and, um, but they're very similar to your four-line verse, humorous four-line verse. I can't do his and yours. Would you like to ghostwrite? I will pay you. And if you do the illustration, just little pin men, etc., I'll give you the artist fee as well. Wow. So I got 375 quid <gasps> for a card. Each wow. Card. That was Purple Ronnie. That was 19, I think, 1987, because I was, I was 23. Um, hadn't hit the, 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 um, the shops yet at all. It was very embryonic. Um, and I ghost wrote on some poems, etc., for him. And there were some that he liked the, he liked the title. He didn't like the poem, 
that I'd written, but he liked the concept. And so they'd pay me for the concept. That's so amazing. I, I, was, I, I was getting um, more for one card than I was for like a whole month's salary at the Building Society, at the bottom of the note. But who knew that that was a business? Who knew people did that for a living? Even now, you know, I've, I've had people saying, I, I never actually thought about who does the jokes and poems on greetings cards. It was um, the golden days of greetings cards. It was a very lucrative at the time because there was a whole, what I didn't know behind the scenes was there was a whole revolution going on. Because somewhere in the world, people realised that people over 40 laughed at jokes about sex and ageing and breaking wind. Before that, the, 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 um, the card offering for people over 40 was very fusty bouquets, dartboards, fishing rods. And the profit in greetings card is enormous, absolutely enormous, phenomenal. So all these little greetings cards were, and they were setting up and they were hungry for copy. Um, and so that, again, was a, a – this guy could have just turned around and said, no, we've, we've got Purple Ronnie. Purple Ronnie didn't need me sending in a couple of poems here and there. It, it stood the test of time, become a multi-million pound business. It didn't need this little woman from Barnsley writing the odd poem for them. They could have turned around and said no. And in that sheer act of kindness, that propelled me so far because that became my job for many years, writing greetings cards. Um, when when um, you know I got I got pregnant ten years later, I was I was pregnant, um, lost my job, and that became my full time occupation. Um, because I'd just done it here and there, spotted here and there, but I lost my job, and I thought, what do I do? Wrote to loads of greetings card firms and said, look, I've written for Purple Ronnie. Do you need any copy written? And all of them came back and said, yeah, we'd love that. And so I used to sit down there, pregnant, throwing up, and, and I'd earn my mortgage and all my bill money on a Monday morning. And the rest of it was play money. It was massively lucrative. And, you know, and it put, it, but my, I was married then. Um, and my husband was rubbish, to be honest. He never brought any money in. It was all down to me. And had I not brought any in, we wouldn't have had any. It, all that greetings card money brought my bought my my children's prams. It bought a, a proper car. It brought us a house. It, it bought us food for the table. You know that. And and I will say, uh, you know, I, I do say to them now, you know, never look down on that because me writing jokes about sex etc. has bought all your school uniforms. You know, I'm very snobby about where our money came from. Not so, but I mean, how amazing, Millie. But also, that must have been really good for your writing because, again, like when you pick a card, you just pick it, don't you? It's like I've heard you say this before that you've got to, you know, connect with somebody. So this then, which is what your books do so well, and because you make your readers feel really seen, you were doing this, and to do that in two lines is really that is so hard. Well, like I said to you, I've always loved jokes. And I always liked the observational humour. I always like the things that bind us. The, I, I, the, the things I laugh at most are sort of Peter Kay-esque humour that, oh, my God, I was the only person in the world that did that. And with greetings cards, if a joke is funny, you won't buy the card, you'll remember the joke. But if it's relevant to somebody, if it's got something knocking Manchester United on it or Chelsea or there's a name on the car oh my god that's Andy Andy's got his name you don't even look at the joke it's just got that 
Andy, it's got that relevance. So you bite for your mate Andy. And so writing greetings cards and um, because I worked for a firm that if there was a, an absolute, uh, you know, a current trend, they could have a card with that trend in the shops in a couple of days, testing it out. And so we had to be always looking to see what was relevant, what was the new thing. iPhones, iPods, Botox, um, you know, David Beckham's latest kid. Um, all the, it was relevant humour. And, and that, I was in my, you know, I was in my comfort zone with all that. And that is what I love to write about in my books. You know, I, I like to write about um, all the stuff that women talk about and, and, like you said, it's lovely when women women write to me and say, "It's like you were looking over my shoulder into my friendship group and listening to us." Yeah, and yeah, that, that's really special. I love that. Yeah, oh, well, it's the magic. It is absolutely the magic. But before, so so you were all you were still at this time writing your books, and you were sending. Them, and what kind of books were you writing? Because your first book was about a vampire, wasn't it? So they, it, did they just slowly evolve your books? Yeah, it was about. Um, it was it was about a, a an older man. Um, and there was a there was a vampire and and a, a young girl who came to work for him, um, and um, they they kind of said, "Oh, this stuff really is not going to sell." So um, I was before my time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, a lot of a lot of things that happen in our world are due to timing. Yeah, you know, and uh, and sometimes I've been in the wrong place at the wrong time, like with the vampires, but I was in the right place at the right time with the greetings cards. So I was I was writing, I think I'd written a book um, about a, a, a group of women who were in a dieting uh, group and called it um, fat mates, you know, like flatmates. Then Kay Bella brought out fat friends or whatever it was. And I thought, oh God, you know, it's one of those things that, you you know, you, you, you can pick it out of the universe, but somebody else already picked it out as well so I'd got a dieting group I'd got um people I got one about a, a woman who was uh, a, a guardian angel, had been sent down uh, like a guardian angel a bit like a wonderful life to look after this woman um and they were all coming back no I don't like this don't like this um and sometimes I was just sending out I was just writing and and sending it out I didn't even have an idea of a book hope the agent would say, oh, this is it, you know, blah, blah. But the one thing that did kind of focus me, as it were, was that I was married, I got pregnant, um, and um, the three girls that I worked with in Asda at the same time as, as me all got, well, sorry, there were three of us in a, a friendship group of five. We all were pregnant at the same time. I'd lost my job. Um, we all stayed friends and are indeed still very good friends to this day, you know, still best mates. And um, I was, I was, knew nothing about babies at all. I didn't have any brothers or sisters. All my pals had friends, uh, kids later on. Um, and it was when we were sitting in my front room after all the babies had been born um, with our little newborns, and it was like a bolt out of a bolt of lightning coming through the window why are you writing about this friendships barnsley women workplaces and i it was as if i'd been looking on the horizon for all these years to find a, a storyline and it was at my feet the whole time so i started to write this story about um three women who 
all got pregnant at the same time, who were all on the cusp of 40, who were very different women as we were. The friendship on paper probably wouldn't have worked, but in reality it did. They were all at school together, that much I did bend, um, and um, sent it off to this agent, the agency that I'd been chasing. And uh, they wrote back. They Actually, they didn't ring back at all. They rang me. Wow. Said, this is the one we've been <gasps> waiting for. How much of this have you got written? And um, I said, oh, loads. I hadn't. I'd got three chapters. And they said, well, send us what you've got. So I was like just writing through the night at this point, you know, just to send more chapters off. Uh, and so I would send in chapters. I would drip free them chapters at every stage, thinking they'd turn around and say, nah, it's gone off the boil. Don't like this. Um, and they didn't. Even right at the end, when I sent in the last chapters, I sent them in and they, I, I was expecting them to turn around and say, well, we liked it all up to that last word and then we're going to pass. But they didn't. Um, and they said, right, we're going to, we're going to just, we, we need to refine this because it was all written in the, the first person. There were three voices and they said, we want you to go back and rewrite it all in the third person. <laughs> it's like, I like a mammoth task, but you know, you, you do you it. You did it. You so did it. I was writing through the night. I've got the two little kids at this time. You know, and uh, I was writing, writing through the night, um, and uh, and then doing my uh, greetings card job during the day. Um, but I, I did it, and and then of course they say, right, it's no guarantee that we're going to get a publisher. And you think automatically, if you've got an agent, you're going to get a publisher. And there were so many stories I'd heard of people who got an agent and they went, can't sell it. You're going to have to go and write another one. Um, and uh, it was awful. I told everybody in the world not to ring me because that phone, I was just sitting staring at this phone all day. Um, and um, the only person that was allowed to ring me was the, the agent. And they were ringing me saying, just letting you know, this is a pass, this is a pass. Um, they were very good about keeping in contact with me because they don't always, they don't have to. And they don't realise the, the anxiety that is going on my brain. Um, and it was, they'd sent it out to five and I think three had passed, but somebody else had asked for it. So they biked it across and it was just before the big, um, the big book fair, the big book fair in uh, Frankfurt in October. And they'd already warned me that everything stops just before this. Nobody's interested. They want to go to Frankfurt. This was the Friday before Frankfurt and she ran me and she, and I, I, as I as I was want to do, I jumped in and I went, oh, hello, I know why you're ringing me. It's okay, I understand, you've got Frankfurt, blah, blah, I'm not going to get a deal. And there was a silence. She went, well, you're wrong, I've got one. And it was done that Friday just before she'd, she'd met the publisher, who I still have now, in, on a rainy day, late at night in the middle of London, on a, fri on a Friday night, and they said, we're going to offer. We're going to make you an offer for this. Wow. And Millie. I'm true. <laughs> how, how did you feel? I mean, that moment, that all those 15 years. And let's just say this. So obviously you mentioned as well, you work, you'd worked in Asda. You know, you'd been working really, really hard. And you had, so you had two babies by this stage? 
I had really too close together. Yeah. Too close together. Oh. And you worked through the night. And I, because I've heard you say this, and you're absolutely right about when people say, for all next chapters, oh, I don't have time. Well, you, find, you found time, didn't you? You do. And, you know, I know this for a fact that you do find time for the important things. I was doing a full time job. I'd, uh, I had two toddlers. By this time, my marriage had broken up as well. So I had two toddlers. I was a single mum. I was earning, you know, and I'd got a job that wasn't secure, of course, because it was greetings cards. And sometimes you you got nothing. The, 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 the bottom was starting to fall out the market. And sometimes I'd gone from mega money uh, um, to, um, you know, maybe not earning anything. So I was really chasing the book all the time. Um, and so it, it was It was really hard, but I did work through the night, you know, propped up by a lot of coffee. I'd, you know, um, I'd have oh, three, four hours sleep sometimes. Um, and then, you you know, you've got a, a, a one in a, a child, a little child in nursery or around you, you know, you're exhausted. Looking back, I don't know how I did it, but I just knew that I had a massive chance and I couldn't let it go. Um, so I, um, my analogy is always, you know, oh, I haven't got time. I'm doing this ironing. I can't, I need to do, I haven't got half an hour to spare. And Keanu Reeves turns up on the doorstep with a bottle of wine and says, you haven't got half an hour to spare. Have you? I'd like to crack this open. You're going to, you're not going to say, I'm sorry, Keanu, I've got me ironing. You are going to let that guy in, aren't you? And you are going to just sit down for half an hour. So you find, you always find time when you need it. You will push things aside. And you'd say quickly yes, because you don't want him to meet up with Gillian. No, Gillian would have had him. <laughs> would have, would have, should have eaten him whole. Yeah, we didn't. We don't want that to happen. We don't. Even, oh my goodness! And because you said as well, you were propped up by coffee and Walker's biscuits. I mean, that's what you did, wasn't it? Your shortbreads. Yes, and every year for years and years until I stopped asking because I felt cheeky when I was doing my uh, launches in Barnsley Market and things. And uh, they sent me massive consignments of coffee and Walker shortbread to give away. Yeah. Really kind, and you know it was lovely of them. But yeah, Walker shortbread and Dow Egbert's coffee. Oh well, thank goodness. And so that I mean that moment, Millie, that moment. You know, when your agent said just before the Frankfurt Book Fair, do you remember how you felt that moment and what what it felt like? Absolutely none. I couldn't take it in. I couldn't take it in uh, at all. And it was like, it, it's it's too big for your head. Absolutely too big for your head. And then I rang everybody that I knew in the on the planet, my mum, my mates, and not one of them was in. Answering <laughs> machines. Um, and, you know, obviously they rang me back later on and it was like, you know, great. And then the next day I had the biggest migraine I've ever had in my life. I'd not had migraines for years and had this huge migraine. And I think it was because I was thinking, well, I've, I've done, I've done, I've landed the big fish. What do I do now? And it was only later on that I realized that getting that deal is not the top of Everest at all. It's not even base camp. That's when the fun really starts. You know, it's it's nowhere near the zenith of your career. It's just the door opening and letting you in. But I had this huge migraine because I, I thought, I don't know what to do with myself. And you start working. And I mean, it, it, you, it doesn't really get exciting until you start. The most exciting thing for me was when I was about three books in. 
And people were writing to me saying, I've read your first couple of books. When's your next one out? And I realized that I was starting to build a readership. That's when it got really exciting. That was far more exciting than the publishing deal. Mm, I can understand that. I can understand that. And because you carried, so then, you know, well and truly we're into the next chapter now. You carried on, I think it was your, was it your eighth book before you actually became a full-time writer? Yeah, because I mean, you know, there, there are these big deals out there and we still hear of them, you know, somebody throwing a million quid at you. With me, um, the and I, even though I wanted it, the agency said, we're going to grow you. We're going to grow you sm- slowly and surely. And I was going, please, no, just give me the million quid. And, you know, I wanted and I couldn't have lived on my I mean, I'll be I'll be quite candid about it. My first deal for two books was 25,000 quid. Take off the agents 15 percent and whatever the tax fund's going to take off. And that's over. You split that over two years. That was for two books. Lived on that. You know, it was a pittance. Um and and so you know when when they uh, those two books sold out and then my next deal went up because um, the shops etc were thinking well we haven't got any books left on the shelf she sold out so we'll take a few more and and then they did do exactly what they said they were going to do and built me slowly and surely so there's a lot of people who have the million pound advances chucked at them. Um, but they don't sell out. They don't make that money. And the publishers are quite reticent to give them another deal or give them a much smaller deal. Whereas me, I was my money was going up and up every time. The sales were going up and up every time until they started to really, um, you know, the supermarket started to take me on. And of course, if you're not in a supermarket these days, you'll struggle. But the big supermarkets were taking me on. And not only that, the big supermarkets um, my my proven my proven sales record was such that they were giving me the top spots. They were giving me, and so they did grow me slowly and surely. And it was about eight books. And I mean, you know, write, writing greetings cards, etc., was lovely. Um, but I, round about eight books, I thought, do you know what? I can sustain myself on my writing wage now, and I will leave it. I will leave that world because I didn't. I felt it was a bit greedy. I got a lot of pals still in the greetings card market and and the pickings were getting slimmer and slimmer. So I thought, I'm going to leave it, leave it to you. You have my share and I will survive on my um, my writing. I was getting foreign deals in. These are all the, the cap-ups, you know, and money from libraries, of course, whenever you get um, a, a, a book um, borrowed from a library, you get a small percentage, which is capped at a maximum. And I was getting the maximum every year, which was nice. So people were borrowing me you know like hundreds of thousands of people were borrowing me from libraries um i was going out and doing talks so i was getting a little bit of extra wage that way and I, i've always liked that kind of i think i'm del boy in a in a in a frock i've always liked that you know chasing the quid thing you know and, uh, so i all i had all little sidelines coming in and uh, which was lovely doing talks etc for people and, and that. so i could survive on my you know, on my wage. I was starting to get awards at this time as well. And newspapers were interested in me, not just the the um, the local ones, but the national ones were asking my opinion on things. So, yeah, I was I was growing. My statue was growing. Well, that was I mean, as hard as I suppose it was to hear at the beginning, 
it actually was the right way round, wasn't it? It was complete, because like you say, when you hear about these stories with big authors and as somebody who, you know, I'm still at very much at that stage of sort of trying to, you know, find an agent and that kind of thing. But you do want that. You want someone to find you and discover, I suppose, you, you know, yeah, come on then and here's a million pounds. But actually, you're right, because then the pressure and to keep that going, it's so much better to have done it the way you've done it, isn't it? And look now, you're 20 books. Like yeah. you say, you've the, the RNA, you've had an amazing award. You've been on Come Dine With Me. I, I, I mean, <laughs> but, you know, it's just, and, and, and you've created this world and you created this world for you and your boys as well, that you could then be at home, presumably not being, you know, that, that's, an, that's an incredible achievement, Millie, isn't it? I'd like to think so. I'd like to think that... Um you know, that I, I had to work at it. I think there's a lot of, in the industry there, that they hear about the million pound advances and think it's instant, think this job is instant. And if they don't get a traditional deal, then they go off and self-publish without even editing it. There are some great self-publishing books out there. They use the same editors that we do, etc. cetera. Uh, and, and if you, even if you self-publish, that book has to be properly edited. You know, you can't just fling something out there if it doesn't happen instantly if well nobody's discovered my genius blah blah go straight off to that you know you've, you've got to treat this as a as a craft and, and you know had I not made it the traditional way there was there was just that one option for me then but I you know if, if I've said now if the if the bottom fell out of my market and something happened and they said to me you know we can't sell your books anymore I would go down the self-publishing route myself but I would have to do it properly you have to take your time use your editors etc it's not an instant job this at all you know and, um you people moan I haven't got a good wage blah blah not everybody does in this in this world but there are people like myself who who are you know who really throw everything at it and, and are earning a good wage. It doesn't necessarily mean that the harder you work in this business, by the way, that you will get your true recompense. But you can increase your chances by working really, really hard and, you know, putting yourself where water can't. I, I you know, have a blog, social media. I always think if I've got one new follower, that person could be the one who ends up with Steven Spielberg in a lift, you know, in my book, you know, and he says, "What's that?" So you 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 have to you have to fling everything you've got at it, and that gives you the best chance of making it in this business. And also, I, nobody was writing about Yorkshire, which was a gamble. Um, now there seems to be quite a lot of people writing about Yorkshire. Um, I just put all my eggs in the Yorkshire basket and thought, "This is what I know. This is how I can write authentically." This gives me the best vehicle um, of putting, uh, you know, uh, all my all my characters, all the people I want to write about, all the things I want to write about, and and I suppose I, I had that in my favour that I was writing about a place that um, hadn't been written about, and the people of Yorkshire. And and let me let me just say this: that it's not all my writing that has put me where I am. The people in Barnsley were massively uh, supportive. The editor of the local paper, Radio Sheffield, people buying my books at full price, sending them away to Australia and New Zealand, wanting to get behind me, turning out to Tesco's and in the market. You know, it was it was a proper PR job by the town. So there were all sorts of, of factors. Um, but, you know, nobody, nobody teaches you this. 
time, you know. Nobody says, go and do a little readers group. There are six women there who will pay you in scones. And, and, I, and I know myself that at any other time had I been asked, maybe I, I might have been a bit sniffy and thought, well, that's not going to get me very far. But it does. It really does. Because that readers group is attached to that readers group who was attached to that WI who will pay you 70 quid for going to talk to a WI. And there's 100 women there who will feed you in their homemade scones and buy all your books and tell other WIs. And it, it really is a, you know, it's like those little cells multiplying when you see them, mm. when an egg fertilizes. Mm. It's like that. But you have to give yourself the best chance and do not take no for an answer. No, and it's and yeah, and and actually, you must have all the time because, as we said, your books really do touch on. They do make you feel seen, and all the time you're meeting all these women, and you're getting you're getting ideas, I suppose, for your for your stories. But also, can I just ask me because as somebody, so I'm just I'm writing my fourth book at the moment, and I'm self publishing and learning all the time. And what what I admire about your books is you so clearly have your voice. You've really got your voice. And I find it very hard. I still feel that I haven't quite found my voice yet. But how did you do that? Did How did you refine that to get your voice and, and be able to, it's a big question I know, but your voice and also to bring those characters in that they are such real women? I think I just, I think it was, well, I've got a theory, okay? And my theory is, that God kind of thought, this woman wants to write, I'm going to give her 40 years of experience. And before I let her loose on the page, and it's just people I've met, people who have fascinated me. I'm fascinated by people. I love to eavesdrop on conversations, etc. And And I I just I just love people. And I, I can imagine some of the conversations that I've had in my head when I, I write dialogue. I, I write it as if I'm having a conversation with somebody myself. I think, you know, with, with my own voice, um, it, it was very much funneled down the uh, medium of women's friendship. I think that formed the core. That gave me really the starting point of, of these conversations between women, the support between women. I always thought I wrote romance books until recently, and and, and my publishing uh, publishers said, actually, you don't. You know, there's always a romance featured there, but it's not necessarily the thing that takes centre stage. And you do do it so well. Even I mean, I could talk to you about this for ages, and I'm conscious of your time. But you know, like when you talked about the sandwich generation, and just actually, you know, as a daughter or as a as a son, you know, sometimes you're just providing a structure to keep a parent living an independent life, even though you all sort of pretend that you're not. And it just that just hit. You know, when I read that with you, and it's like, oh god, and the people that you know, I. I can completely understand that. But you just sort of hit the nail on the head. Of, but actually, you're sort of scrabbling along thinking, God, this is so hard. But this is actually what you're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, my my father passed. Um, but my diary was just, take dad to dentist, take dad to hear this. And then my mum started. <laughs> and, you know, my my mum is, is 91, you know, next next month. And we do, we, we've always bickered me and my mum. But... Like you said, I've got this structure in place. I've not moved from where I am so that I can be around the corner from her. Um, and she will say to me, uh, you know, what do you, what 
would you do for me anyway? You know, if we've had a bit of a row, she's like, what would you do? You just go away. I can, I can look after myself. Um, and, and I think maybe it's credit to how smoothly it all runs that we put our tablets out, that we cook our meals, that we lock her in for the night, that we do a washing, that we change the beds, etc. That it's all done for her. And, and I don't know whether she thinks this magic fairy does it all for her. But, you know, there is a massive infrastructure in place. We are, you know, and we're like these ducks all kind of, you know, gliding along the top. But underneath, you know, our, our, um, you know, our legs are paddling. My, my other half takes the paper in the morning, makes sure she's had a breakfast, etc. So we, it's, it's all this. Uh, but you still, you know, there are times be between when my other half has come home, he's just come home now, and when I go later on where I have to work. And I'm panicking, thinking, oh, God, she's not stimulated enough. She's not doing this. She's not. I haven't, I haven't got time to take her out today because I'm an only child as well. And it's just, a, it's just that awful cycle of, you know, if we're all honest with ourselves, of guilt. And then, you know, there, there is some resentment there that you're trapped in this. And, and then there's there's like, you know, there's, there's if you feel sorry, there's a love. There's this whole cocktail going round in your brain when you're in the, the a caring, um, you know, in a caring role. Um, and we're, we're often too scared to admit that we do feel cross sometimes, that we can't just whip, whip off anywhere or in case, um, you know, we can't go on holiday, we can't do this. Um, and it, and I wanted to acknowledge it in the in the woman in the middle. I wanted to say, look, it's okay if you take yourself out of the zone for a while and plug yourself into the mains because none of us can run on flat batteries. Um, and the letters I've had from people saying, thank you, I just needed to hear that. But, yeah, but can I just tell you something? Please, Ellie, that, please. That is very weird when you're a writer, and you'll feel this yourself, is that, I was writing a book about a woman in the sandwich generation, not one that was saying, let yourself off the hook. As I was writing it, it was almost as if my characters were telling me to let myself off the hook. It was like, we do this on, on paper, you know, authors write things. And it's almost like you're writing your own wisdom written for yourself that comes back to you. I had no... I didn't even know that I needed to let myself off the hook until I wrote the book that told me to do that and they were my words that that imagination and that wisdom and the magic and it's amazing speaking of magic before we move on what was it like being on come dine with me i've always <laughs> wondered what it's like <laughs> my pal wrote to me and said they're recruiting in the area um and i said absolutely no chance like you must be joking she said think of the book sales my third book had just come out at this stage um and i i thought well I'll, I'll, I'll fill in the form. And if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And I got through, no idea how, um, and did it. And it really is as intensive as, as you think. You know, a, a, a lot of people wonder if it's set over two weeks. But in, in the morning, you go to a place where you have the menu you reveal. And as you're rolling it down, they film your reaction. So you don't, you have no idea what that menu reveal says until you, you know, and they film you. Um, then you go away for a, a couple of hours, get ready. The taxi kind of picks you about six o'clock. You could be waiting in the taxi for an hour um, because they, they go in one by one into the person's house. No idea who I was going in. Uh, you know, I didn't know how many people were there. You have your meal. Um, the, the meal can take three or four hours. 
I think we were waiting in between courses well over an hour and a half at my first, um, you know, uh, and the, when I was interviewed afterwards, they were trying to say to me, how did you feel about that? And I went, well, you know, I don't want to slag her off if she's got all the cameras. And they said, you know, you, you should tell the truth. And when I, when I saw it back, I realised she was picking all these insects out of the salad. Oh, no. Lot. Um, but, you know, I mean, you can be there and you think, I'm not going to get drunk. I'm just going to sip my wine. So you sip. But when, I'm, when you've got three hours of sipping, <laughs> we had 13 bottles of wine between us on the first night. Um, <laughs> the, the film crew were fantastic. It's very dangerous to go on one of those shows if you are a horrible person because you quickly forget how um, how though you know they they are so unobtrusive the, the the cameraman and that if it's your night then you um, the next day so on the mine was on the Thursday on the Wednesday night I was the first one to go home um, and I was so tired I overslept I had five minutes before the film crew were arriving. And I had all my house to mop up. I was in a slight panic. But then they went off and had a bacon sandwich. And I went round the house like a whirling dervish. Someone said to my dad, they said, you know, your last got a nice house. And he said, I don't know, I've never, I didn't recognise it being that tidy. So, um, but, yeah, it was the best fun. It was, I never expected to win. I was just playing it for laughs. Um, and um, it, it was, you know, I stayed friends with, with all the people, one of them, the one I was closest to, sadly died last year, uh, oh, was lovely. But you are at the mercy of the edits. What was your main course? What did you do for your main course? My main course, um, I played everything to hearts and flowers thing. You know, you're given 125 quid for your budget, which I blew on half the flowers. So my main course, I'd, I'd gone for a very simple dish of, um, that I, I love, chicken and mushroom. In a, in a white wine and gruyere sauce with little puff pastry hearts and potato daffinoise in little heart-shaped dishes, but the middle was sweet potato, so I called them sweetheart potatoes. Um, I'd made it all up. I'd just gone with the theme. Um, and, you know, it was, it was simple fare. Lovely, and the fact you had lovely friendships as well. How amazing. So moving on, Millie, to be continued. Now, you've got a book coming out in your paperback together again. But what to be continued, what would you like to do next? You know, do you want to just, I mean, just, you're doing so amazingly to carry on as you are. You know, is there anything else that you would like to do? Yeah, I've, you know, I've thought this because they, they um, there are all sorts of projects sometimes that open up. Would I like to do this? Do I want to do more? after dinner speaking do I want to do more of this and really you know the 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 hub of my career the best part my favorite part is writing the books so I I don't really want to do anything other than write the books preferably I'd like I'd like to write the book that gets me the the Netflix deal etc that's a lottery you know I think with with certainly with authors that we, it's it's lovely to pander to that. Let's write something that might Netflix might take up. Let's write something that foreign markets might want. I, I think they're all the bonuses. And and my first agency was very wise about it. Write the book, concentrate on getting the best book out there that you can, and the rest of it is the lottery. That's you. You need that strong root of of your book. And you know if that's strong then that will sell for your UK market. Anything else is a bonus, the foreign markets, et cetera, the, the film deals. So I'm just 
writing writing my books and concentrating on the books. I like being at home. I like sitting at my desk. Um, I'd like to do I like to do side projects. I write a lot of poetry um, that came from this career. I, I used to just fill in a bit of poetry just to ring in the differences when I was doing a talk and ended up writing so much poetry. Um, but people had said to me, have you ever written a poem about this part of your life? And I thought, yeah, that would make a good one. You know, and so I wrote um, a, a poem about the, the woman that my first love ran off with um, called The Trollop of Scunthorpe. <laughs> and uh, and these, these poems, you know, became a, a – I self-published the book. And so I know how really good the self-publishing – once upon a time, if you'd got a self-published book, it looked like a self-published book, didn't it? it yeah, it did. Like, but these days, the quality is fantastic. And I, I love the idea, as I said, of chasing the book. I'd like to do a, a self-published joke book. I've got a great – I've got a great bloke who formats it and does all the cartoons. So I love that kind of going off on a tangent and doing the little self-published project myself and that I'm totally in control of and can mark it um, so I've got a million million jokes there that are waiting to go into a joke book um, so I you know, I do them I, I I did the poetry book for for charity I, I didn't make anything on it um, but you know that gives me a bit of a thrill as well just going out and and earning a bit and giving a bit back to the community I feel very lucky that I've been so well supported by my community that that going out and doing something else is, is lovely for them and supporting a few local charities and stuff. But to answer, to answer a, you know, I've, I've gone, I do what I usually do and answered a, a very short question with a very long answer. That's amazing. I just, I just want to write books. Mm. I just love writing books. Yeah, yeah. And why not? And thank goodness you do. Although I think if your books were made into a Netflix, I think you'd have to get Keanu Reeves, you know. I'd, I'd get Keanu Reeves... Jason Momoa and Liam Neeson, you know, um, and uh, all three of them. I don't know which one I'd kick out of bed to let the other one in. I have got a hall pass with these. We've got my, my other half's got a hall pass with Nigella Lawson and uh, Christina Hendricks. We've, you know, so we can talk about this, you know, like who says, What did your other half think about you saying this? But we've got a hall pass, you know. <laughs> On that note, acknowledgements. Now, obviously, apart from Gillian, who would you like to thank who has helped you along the way? Yeah. Sadly, some of them have passed. My old English teacher, Kate Taylor, who again was one of uh, somebody else that I, I, I kind of paid homage to her in, in one of my books, hoping it would get to her which he did um but I always liked English um and you know uh, and stories but she was the one that ripped the scales off my eyes I'd done this really mediocre um essay about Jane Austen and and she said what well, this isn't your usual standard what's the matter with you she's really boring Jane Austen and she said can I swear she said to me darling girl she's taking the piss she said <laughs> <laughs> and just and one I I sat up be, you know, bolt upright because the teacher had sworn, uh, which was always weird, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but she made me see Jane Austen in a totally different light. And ever since, I've been Jane Austen's wingman um, and gave me this great love of literature because I, I saw it through her eyes. And for the first time ever, I think I really enjoyed classic literature. Um, and she, she absolutely gave me the... The love of the literature, I think there's a bit of Jane Eyre and persuasion in all my books. 
you know, uh, because of Miss Taylor. Of course, Chris Douglas Morris, who was the guy at, who uh, owned Statics, the uh, the card company that said to me, "I'd like to buy some of your things," which um, he didn't have to do. That little bit of kindness propelled me so far. Again, sadly, no longer with us. Died far too young. Um, my my pals. Um, Jess Spencer and Jed Backland, who, um, again, when I had the second run of my greetings card career, were the first that said, come in, you know, and, um, and, and bought loads of material from me at Carlton Cards just in Dewsbury. Um, my, the, the first agency that I had, a, a lady called Elizabeth, um, who was the one who wrote the handwritten notes, and my first ever agent at that, at Darley's, who was the one who took me on, um, Lucy Whitehouse, who is now a novelist in her own right, who, who took me on and really pushed for me and got me my first deal with my publisher, Suzanne Babineau, who is, who is still my editor, um, my chief editor at the publishers. I'm still with the same publishers these days uh, that I, I was back then uh, they royally looked after me um and so i've got such a great team behind me these these people who who have stayed with me in my career and my my present agent of course lizzie was the one that said i don't like your characters don't like your characters when lucy left the agency um and i think so sometimes you start off being a good fit to an agency or a publishers and then it's time to move on um, and and I moved to my present agent, who was the one who turned my first book around, and uh, and she is the my best present fit. Absolutely adore her, and uh, and so these people who have have you know who have, have done great things for me, but also just done little things for me that have turned my career around. But that's what has struck me from this conversation, Millie. Of all these, it, yes, because some of the, sometimes some people in intend- you can be in the wrong mindset can't we because you think oh well I didn't get the deal I didn't get that but you looked at it in a different way so that 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 first little note you know keep with this or speaking to Shirley all that time and you actually listen to what she said and then and I think it's how you've interpreted it which makes because often we're given these gifts and because we're so blinking like oh you know oh nothing good happens to me you're missing that actually this is a little gem that we can get hold of and this look look where it's taken you far more than the big big gestures and i always i always thought that um because you have to be in the right place at the right time sometimes and and i with all the rejections that i'd had with my letters uh, with my you know my manuscripts i i always thought well what if that person there who's rejected me had a migraine that day or had something on their mind and maybe another time they would have accepted the manuscript and there were so many people, you know, who rejected me initially who after a couple of books came back and said, are you, are you happy with that? We'd like to talk again. And so, you know, I, I would never take a rejection at face value because I'd always think, well, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, maybe they hated it. You know, you have to you have to face the fact that maybe they didn't like it. But maybe also that they thought, oh, crikey, you know, they're giving it to a junior who thought, no, I'm not even bothering reading that. Or maybe, um, you know, that they just were ill or in a rush. So I kept on trying. I kept on trying. And and after a, a year, I kind of went back again to that agency. Probably shouldn't have done it just in case 
they they might have a, a different person looking at it. But I've known books, and I won't name names, who have ended up on the slush pile, and someone's just happened to read something while they were standing waiting for a coffee and really liked it and taken it off the slush pile and that's a published book and that's why this this game is all shifting sands it's it's all shifting sands and and it's all look and you know um but you can give yourself more chance you can't fight fate and being on a slush pile and happen to have somebody pick it up but you can give your best shot in putting yourself where water can't and, and infiltrating and going onto local radios. You know, this this career does not come handed to you on a plate, you know. Um, and, you know, some people don't like doing all that stuff. But I wanted to give myself the best chance and, and go onto local radio, go onto local newspapers and, and, and shove myself in everywhere, get a blog going, get a website going hand out things free, do a launch in the market, you know, and I just wanted to give myself the best chance. And you really, you really, really have. So on, so this is our final section, tips and advice of what you would, so somebody listening to this, and it doesn't need to be writing, somebody who is wanting to just, they can hear the passion that you have, because that's what it boils down to as well, isn't it? It goes back to you being that girl at school, you had that passion you wanted to write, and you and you did it and you stuck with it and it was your your calling now before i go into that another thing i've heard you say which i think is really important especially as women we are really bad about talking about money um and you and because like what you do is you are running your own business as such aren't you with being an author and this is something now i think a lot of our next chapters does involve us running our own businesses of some kind it's certainly you know and you have the freedom that brings but we're all myself included i you know i find it very hard to talk about money you know you know your worth and all this sort of thing so if somebody's listening to this and they're like do you know what I really I want to do something else I want to feel as passionate as me but I'm just too scared to to be able to go out there like you have what would you say to that person I would say you know I I am the poster girl for this I I was riddled with self-doubt I was terrified of having no money and I've had I've been working and had no money you know but we hear a lot in this, I, I can't talk, I can't tell you my wage because they, the the uh, the publishers have got a real downer on it. It's a private thing. I wish there were more transparency within publishing because we hear so many stories about um, that, you know, there, there are a lot of authors out there who, who aren't earning enough for it to be a full-time job and let the day job go. But there are authors like myself who are doing all right. And I can, this is my job. And and so I've invested in my, you know, in my business. I'm a businesswoman. I've got an accountant. Um, I've got the best equipment than I have. I've got the biggest room in the house because my office is the engine room that runs the rest of the house. I'm not I'm not going to, you know, fiddle about on a, a tiny little phone, etc. when I'm running the my business and I need the best equipment. And, and also, um, you know, there are women and men, but I'm talking primarily in commercial fiction, because this is the one that um, people look at and think, oh, there's an awful lot of people out there. Is it worth me doing it? Because they're not earning any money. There are women who are earning a lot of money um, because they're working bloody hard, like I do, um, and, and going out there and, you know, um, and having proven uh, sales records and, and so, yes, do it because it's not 
necessarily the case that you're going to be flogging your backside, writing books and never getting anywhere. You, you might, you know, your wage might go up and then you can do things on the side, like go out and charge people for talks. The amount of people who ask me to go out for talks, I will say this, it's all right, bugbear. They'll say, um, it's a charity event, blah, blah. Can you, had one recently. Can you come down to Norfolk and do this? We'd really like to hear your story. Yeah, okay. And by, by standards of some celebrities will charge 10 grand just for turning up. My, my fees are very modest for turning up but I am going to be paid because I'm away from the desk for a day um, and I don't see why I shouldn't have the petrol as well never hear from them again and yet it, it's a weird thing with novelists and we have to remember to value ourselves because you wouldn't do that with a plumber but you would say to a novelist can you come down because we think by having you here we can get more footfall over the door but then you ask we can't pay you anything but, you know, we'll, we'll give you some buns. Buns aren't going to pay my mortgage. And the ticket sales, you're going to pay a printer. You're going to pay a caterer. The bookshops will come in and they'll be taking a profit. So why is it that you've got me there to help you sell the tickets, but you're not even going to pay my petrol? We, we have to. And I, I don't do it anymore. I think I've got my own charities that I will support. And I will do them for nothing. But I can't support every charity for nothing. And it's not unreasonable not to expect me to take a, a hit on going down there, even if you want me so much. It, it's a bizarre thing. Um, and it's it's one of those money things that I, I'm, I'm working on now because it's I'm trying to write a, a little guide in such a way that isn't doesn't sound snotty because we think as, as novelists, oh, I shouldn't really be charging for that. It's the honour of being there. No, it's not. If you're a businessman, and I, I'll hark back to one of my very first talks where um, I'd, I'd gone to this little group, uh, Birdwell Reading Group, and uh, I hadn't charged them anything. And a woman slid a tenner from their kitty across the table and she said, you're a professional, you've got to charge. There's a lesson to be learned, you know. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to flog your guts out in this, in this world, in this book world, um, and not get anywhere. It doesn't necessarily mean these days that if you don't have a traditional deal, that you cannot um, go down the self-publishing deal and make an awful lot of money as a lot of my friends have, but please don't rush to think, I need my name on a book, I don't care, I've, I've given it a quick edit, it's going out there. Take your time and, and edit it properly, edit it with as much care as a traditional publisher would. Get yourself, you, uh, these are investments, a really good copy editor, um, the, the, even the, the colour and the, 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 um, the quality of the paper that you're using if you're self-published. It might be a very, very long game, that you're playing here but you know that is the way of it I mean it's taken me it's taken me what is it 20 books to be an overnight success as it were you know not everybody sees that you know you might think oh god she's driving around in a nice car and I think yeah but I've had nearly 40 years of driving around in crap cars etc and struggling and and dodging people to pay Paul and borrowing off this blah blah you know but I I, I was in it for the long haul also, there are two things that we, we do need to address. You do need to have a bit of writing talent you, that you can build on. I was not as good as Gillian by a country mile, but 
practice does make you better, you know. Um, and also, you need a backbone, a flipping iron. This is not an easy job. It's not just sitting down here and churning churning out 100,000 words. Everybody bored after about 3,000. Very, very finely on this note. I know we said about it earlier, but this whole, because people do, and especially, um, and I know I've got such lovely listeners and I know a lot of them are busy and they're overwhelmed, but they, you know, they've got that niggle in them and you see it and I think, oh, come on, you just, because you, it's such a lovely feeling to do something you feel passionate about. And there you were, you were a single mum with two toddlers and you've been, you know, you've got your lovely partner now, but you've done it a lot on your own. You know, to somebody who says, oh, I haven't got enough time, I can't find the time, but they've got, what would you say to that person who's listening? I've always said to my kids, you know, um, you, lads who, who look at people on Instagram wearing, you know, their age, wearing massive watches and stuff. And I've said, what would they've said, you know, what job can I do where I'm earning a million quid at 19? And I've said to them, look, you, you need to maybe play a bit of the longer game. Find something that you love to do. Find something that you're passionate about. And the more passionate about it, you'll do the, the the extra work, you'll learn more, you'll become an expert at it, and then the money will start to come in. So it's like anything. Don't don't chase the money, chase the job, because then the money will, will come after that. Find something that you are passionate about, and then it won't feel like a job. If you're interested in interior design, you'll you'll read books about interior design and and you'll you'll go to exhibitions and love uh, you know if you think oh i want to be a solicitor because that's where the money is or in my case an accountant there was no way on this planet i was going to sit down at night and start looking through how to, how to do you know um some complicated algebra you know because it, it wasn't my passion but now i find it very hard to put my job down um, and um, I, I'm always doing something or reading, or and so passion will will fuel itself, and and so chase chase the passion, find something that you love to do, and it does go for anything because if you wanted, everybody has to start from scratch, you know. I'm sure Gordon Ramsay at one point couldn't boil an egg, but then he did boil his first egg, didn't he? And then he made his first fried egg, and everything starts from a seed, you know. Picasso wasn't born. Um, being able to to um, do fantastic pictures. I'm sure that there were a load of initial ones. He thought, God, these are absolutely crap. You know, and if you if you go to the <clears throat> Van Gogh Museum, Vincent Van Gogh was, a, was a, a technical drawer, you know, he taught himself and he would he would study other other people. And so he, he learned, you know, he, they don't just start off as geniuses. We all learn and refine. And I would like to say now that I think I can write better than Gillian. Well, I tell you what, if we've got nothing else out of today, I feel like we've 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 climbed we've, we've got over a big hurdle today. I mean, this is a breakthrough, Gillian. But listen, you have been amazing. I'm sure Gillian is amazing, but you are honestly you're one of my heroes, and it's just been a joy to meet you, Millie. And you are the queen of wishful thinking. And thank you for just being such a fabulous guest on the next chapter. Oh, I've loved it. Thank you so much, and good luck with your your own books because. You know, don't don't give up. Four that that is a massive amount of work. Four books, isn't it? Four that is huge. Yeah, Four oh, books. Really, thank you. you know, all of us like we want to get one book out there, and then we think, what the hell do I do now? My <laughs> whole life has been geared up to writing one book. Yeah. So the fact is that you have, have beaten the second book curse. 
because so many people think, I've no idea, me included, I've no idea what to write for book two. And you've written four, which means that you've got another four in you, which means you've got another four. And every single one refines you and makes you stronger as a writer. So it's brilliant. Don't do yourself down that you've got four books out there. You know, it's that is a massive achievement, huge. I am going to hold on to that, Millie. That has come at just the right time. Thank you so much. I'm going to buy them all. <laughs> I'll send them, Millie. I'll, send, I'll bring them myself to Barnsley. You won't be able to get rid of me. So there you are. Do you know, I would go to Barnsley to meet the magnificent Millie and Gillian, of course. But what did you think of that? I mean, there's so much to take. I mean, just that. Never take a rejection at face value. And we all have to start from scratch. But well, as tough as that may be, isn't it exciting? Look where it's taken Millie and who knows where it could take you. So to find out more about Millie Johnson, just go to her website. The link is in the show notes and her latest book is just out too. To keep in touch with me and my books, I'd love you to join my mailing list at elliebarkerwrites.com. I'll send you little notes, snippets of wisdoms from more Next Chapter guests and we can keep in touch as I would love to know how you're doing. I'll be back next week, but in the meantime, you can do this. I think you can and Millie does too. And Gillian, of course. Speak soon. <laughs>